Well, if you have your Bibles, you can look at Mark 11, 7 through 10, or Mark 15, 12 through 15, but I'm really just kind of bouncing off of those and talking about the theme of Palm Sunday in general. Uh, this Sunday is Palm Sunday. It's been celebrated that way in the church history for hundreds of years. And what we're celebrating on this day is the, the beginning of what we would call the Passion Week. This is what happened when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And it begins with him being welcomed as a king, and it ends with him rising again from the dead. But in between that, there is the crucifixion. And as we look at this story, one of the things that is often pointed out is these two crowds. Some people believe they are one crowd. Uh, I believe that they're two different crowds. We'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, But you have this one group of people who is saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and that means, uh, Lord, save us. It's kind of like saying hallelujah, but it's a little bit different because you're asking something from God when you say it. Hosanna, I'm believing that God, you are the one that can save me, and I'm asking you to do the saving. And then you have this other group of people who are so upset with Jesus and what he's done and what he's standing for that they want to yell out, crucify him. And what we see in this text is that Jesus did not come to bring peace. Now, I know Zach read uh, a message about peace in the worship. And uh, when we celebrate Christmas, one of the things we talk about is Jesus bringing peace. And it is true that Jesus does bring peace in a certain sense. He brings peace for those of us who want to be made right with God. Because of what Jesus did, I can stand in the presence of a holy God and know that I have peace with him. And Jesus comes because he wants us, as God's people, to have peace with one another. But friends, do not be mistaken. Jesus does not promise us peace with the world. He does not even promise us peace with the same people who live under our own roof. Look at what he says in Luke chapter 12, verses 51 and 52. This is Jesus speaking. He says, do you think that I came here to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. And what we see here on Palm Sunday is Jesus is intentionally stirring up a riot. He knows exactly what he is doing when he rides to town on a donkey. He knew it would cause an uproar. Uproar. The, the politics at the, at the time uh, when Jesus walked in, the pol- political nature of Jerusalem was that there was a lot of fighting groups with one another. And Jesus comes and we expect him to kind of you know, pour soothing oil on it, so to speak. You know, he's going to level everything out. You wonder if Jesus were to come to America today and with how divided we are, what would Jesus do? Would Jesus come and make us all get along as one big happy family? I don't know. He might. But what we see here is that he does not do that at all. He pours gasoline on a fire. He makes everything worse than what it already was. And he does this by riding in on a donkey. And we say, what's the big deal, riding in on a donkey? Well, if we were Jewish people in the time of Jesus, we would know exactly what that meant. Jesus is claiming to be king. He is not saying, hey, you get along with this group and this group, and we can all just kind of find commonalities and come together. No, Jesus is saying, this is not the time for peace. You will now choose between me and these other things that you call king. He is coming and he is intentionally stirring up this riot. There's at least two ways he does this. Number one is he fulfills prophecy on purpose. I I told you that when you ride in on a donkey, it's telling everybody that he is the king. Not only that, though, his followers are shouting out, son of David which would make Jesus the rightful heir to the throne. Now, we tend to think of Jesus as humble and meek, and we ought to think of him that way because he is humble and meek. But if you didn't know who Jesus was, this is not a very humble and meek thing to do. This is the the guy standing up saying, I want to be president of the United States. Now, whether you like the presidents or not, you have to admit that they have a little bit of ego, all of them, because who stands up and says, I'm the one who can save the nation? That's exactly what they do. And Jesus says, I'm the one who not only can save the nation, I'm the one who can save the world. Because almost everybody there would have known Zechariah 9.9, which is a prophecy 
of what was to be fulfilled. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Now, it wasn't that Jesus just, you know, happened to be riding on a donkey and everybody was kind of confused about it. And they're like, oh, he's doing it. And Jesus is like, oh, no, this was the only thing I had. No, Jesus intentionally finds a donkey. We have Grand Theft Donkey in the Bible because Jesus sends his disciples out to intentionally find a donkey. He says, find the first donkey you can. <laughs> Any donkey will do. Take it. And when the guy asks you, hey, why are you taking my donkey? You're just supposed to say, the Lord needs it, which <laughs> I love that. Can you imagine somebody just coming up and taking your car and you're like, hey, what's going on? The Lord needs it. I, I don't think that donkey owner was very happy, but Jesus says, no, I need a donkey. I'm trying to do something here. So he rides a donkey into Jerusalem, intentionally fulfilling this prophecy. And number two is he doesn't stop the crowd when they worship him. He doesn't say, wait, no, 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 don't worship me. This is all a big misunderstanding. That's not what he does at all. Look at Matthew 21, verses 15 through 16. It says, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, he being Jesus, and the children shouting in the temple... Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, Yes. Have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. He's quoting Psalm 8. And you know what Psalm 8 is about? It's about God. So they're saying, they're calling you God, Jesus. You better do something about it. And Jesus doesn't say, well, let's, let's reason about this. No, Jesus immediately goes to starting a fight. He says, yeah, and they're right, because even the babies know to worship God, and that's exactly what they're doing right now. See, he's, he's stirring up a riot. I, I try to think of what it would be like today to think about what Jesus is doing, because, you know, Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, one of the things I'm challenged as a pastor to do is to preach the same message many of you have heard your whole life in a way that still shocks and amazes you like it ought to. And what can often happen is we kind of get lulled into sleep over these stories. We think, oh, yeah, I've heard this. Oh, yeah, I know that happened or this happened. But one of the ways I thought about uh, what this would have been like, so hopefully you kind of feel what it would have felt like for them, is it'd be like if you knew a person who wore one of those red Make America Great hats, and they wore that red Make America Great hat again, uh, however you say it, MAGA is the way I say it. When they walk into the convention, but it's not the Republican convention, it's the Democratic convention. Imagine how that person felt. That's kind of what's going on here with Jesus. You don't do something like that unless you're trying to stir up a riot. You know you're not going to be welcomed when you do something like that. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He is not trying to create peace. Now, I say all of that because I want us to look at that today. And I think there's three things we need to uh, we learn from and the reasons why Jesus acted in this way. Three reasons why Jesus did this. And, and there's something for us to learn in each of these. Number one, the reason why he did this was his hour had come. Number two is I believe Jesus is leaving us no room for neutrality. You don't get to kind of be in the middle. You're either on his side or you're not on his side. And number three is, he is giving us a foretaste of the second coming. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll look at each of these, and then we'll sing to Jesus, and we'll go home, and we'll praise Jesus all week as we think about his sacrifice. Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, thank you that he came not just as our Savior, but as our King and our Lord. God, it is so easy for me in my own heart to want, on one hand, Jesus to be my Savior, but on the other hand, I want to be like the crowd that shouts crucify Him when He gets in the way of my wants and my desires. Jesus, You did not just come as a Savior, You came as our King. And I pray today that as we look at these texts and we look at these reasons for why You did what You did, God, I pray that You'd stir the hearts of people, that they would see You not just as their Savior, but they'd begin to see You as their Lord and their King. God, I pray that You would make us feel what those people felt on that day when You rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. God, we love you and we praise you. Amen.
Number one, the first reason why Jesus did this was his hour had come. Jesus knew that by allowing the people to shout Hosanna in Mark chapter 11, it was going to lead to the other people shouting crucify him in Mark chapter 15. He knew this was going to happen. And until this point, Jesus had actively worked to keep his divinity quiet. If you read the Gospel of Mark or any of the Gospels, it's really interesting how when Jesus heals somebody, one of the first things he says to them is, now don't tell anybody about this. And anytime the crowds start to get to a certain size, he says, all right, boys, we've got to go to the next town. And if you're a marketing agent and you're like, Jesus, we need to get your message out, you're thinking, this is all wrong. This is all backwards. When the crowds get big, that's where we stay. That's where we do ministry. And when you heal somebody, we ought to tell everybody about it so that they'll know who you are. And Jesus says, no, don't tell anybody about the healing I've done for you. And when the crowd gets big, we've got to go. Why is he doing this? Because he says it's not his time yet. He knows that when things get to a certain point, they are going to kill him. But Jesus had work to get done before that point. This is why in John chapter 7, verse 30, it says this. This is after Jesus says something that would have been equated to blasphemy. And it says, Then they, those the Pharisees, tried to seize him. Yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But here on Palm Sunday, his hour has come. It is time for Jesus to do what his father sent him to do. The Pharisees want him to silence the crowd and he won't do it. He says, make them stop. And in fact, what Jesus does in one of the Gospels is he makes a hyperbole. He goes above and beyond. He says, in fact, if I were to silence them, you know what would happen? The rocks would cry out. Now, is he saying literally the rocks would, you know, turn into people who have souls and begin to cry out? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying even the thing that you can't even imagine crying out would begin to cry out for me. This is a hyperbole of the highest extent. He's telling them that he is God. He says that if people were quiet, the stones would cry out. And what is he doing here? He's purposely sharpening the point. He's trying to make them mad. Why? Because his hour had come. That's exactly what it says in John chapter 12, 23 through 24. This is right after the Palm Sunday text that we read. Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be seen for who he truly is. The time has come for the Son of Man to do what he was sent to do. Truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. This was always a part of the plan. Do not let anybody think that Jesus was killed. Jesus was killed, but it wasn't because he couldn't stop them. It was because he gave his life up. Because it was exactly what his father sent him to do. He was supposed to die for the forgiveness of people. He was supposed to fulfill his father's plan in this way. Jesus knew it was all coming to this. This is what the father sent him to do. And for that to take place, guess what he had to do? He had to begin to stir up the crowd. This is something really important for us to learn about God's will in our lives. God's will will be accomplished. What God wants will come to pass. But that does not mean that we do not have personal responsibility. This is the way God works. He gives us choices and he works within those choices to make his will come to pass. The word predestination means see to it. In other words, God will see to it being completed. I love this verse in Acts chapter 2 verse 23. It says, though he, being Jesus, was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. You see what he's saying there? He's saying this was all part of God's plan, and yet it was still your fault. <laughs> because he stirred you up, and you reacted exactly the way God knew you would act, and it led to Jesus dying. And this is why Jesus had to stir them up, because it was his hour. That's the first reason. Number two is I believe he's leaving us no room for neutrality. Uh, we can't be Switzerland. We have to pick a side, and Jesus gives us no other option. Jesus is acting in this manner because he wants to make it clear that we have no room to be on the fence when it comes to him. 
If Easter is preached rightly, and I pray that I do next week, I pray that I do this week, it should leave no room for people to be on the fence. Jesus is coming to town as a king, and you will have to make up your mind on what you think of him. (laughs) That's your only option. Here's the king coming in. Are you going to shout Hosanna, or are you going to shout crucify him? Now, I I mentioned earlier that it is a common belief in the church that people think that uh, this was the same crowd, that in Mark 11, they're shouting Hosanna, and then Mark 15, just a few short days later, they're shouting crucify him. Uh, I remember hearing this uh, growing up a lot, and in fact, I still have like burned into my memory uh, the, the passion play that we did at my church when I was growing up, First Baptist Woodward. They put on a big show. I don't know. They might still do it. Uh, but there, there was this lady that I knew really well, and it was so weird seeing her in this play uh, shouting, crucify him. And I just, like, I was, I was worried for her soul. I asked my mom, is she going to be okay with the Lord? Cause she, she, she wanted to kill Jesus. And as a kid, I couldn't comprehend it. But even as a kid, I, I remember thinking how weird that the people would go Hosanna, Hosanna. And then just a few short days later be yelling out, crucify him, crucify him. And the message was always kind of presented that we don't want to be fair weather fans of Jesus. You know, don't be people who are with Jesus when it's good, but not with him when it's bad. But in reality, that is actually really, really unlikely. Uh, In fact, what is more likely is that there's two different groups in the city. One group wants to kill Jesus, and the other group truly sees Jesus as Savior. They truly see him as Hosanna. And in fact, the text points to this, because when Jesus goes to trial, it makes very clear that the trial was done at night. Why was it done at night? Well, because the people who love Jesus are sound asleep. In fact, from the time Jesus was betrayed by Judas in the garden, it took about nine hours, that's it, before the first nail was going through his wrist and his feet. Nine hours. That's not a fair trial at all. Why did it happen so fast? Because the people wanted to kill him. And so they put together this trial. And and these people who were against Jesus were the ones who were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And it's why they're so worried about speed. It's why it needs to be done right now. So that those people who were shouting, Hosanna, those people who expected Jesus to overthrow the throne and, and to be the king of the world, those people who were excited that Jesus had finally entered Jerusalem, we're sound asleep while all of this was going on. See, this is not a story about a fair-weather crowd. No, it's a story about which crowd you will be in. Because there are two crowds, at least. One crowd is for Jesus. One crowd is against Jesus. It can be more complex than that, but it's really not. You're either for the seed of Adam or the seed of Christ. You will be in one crowd or the other crowd. But you cannot be in both crowds. Now, this is not unlike today. Uh, if you think of uh, our country right now, Uh, It's very divided. I don't know anybody who would say, yeah, we are just a great unified nation. No, we're we're very divided. And yet we're all Americans. But within America, there are several different crowds. This group thinks this thing should happen, and this group thinks this thing should happen. Uh, A great example of this right now uh, is there is a certain former president who's been indicted. Now, I'm not going to get into politics because I don't really care about politics, but uh, we'll use it as an example. I know you guys probably know nothing about this because you don't watch the news. You're busy reading your Bibles and stuff. Uh, But occasionally I turn on the news and I see this stuff. And what's interesting to me is, you know, all the news channels are right there together. And you can be on one news channel and they'll be saying, he's innocent, he's innocent. You just, you click one button and you go up one channel and they're shouting what? Crucify him, crucify him. It's crazy. They're both Americans. They both have the same access to the same facts. And yet what's going on? Well, there's two different crowds. And what I know about a situation like that is you kind of have to pick a side. Now you can pick a side in your mind and keep silent, but there's really not a middle ground, is there? How much more so with the king of this universe? How much more so with the innocent Jesus Christ? That's exactly what's going on here. And what's what's up for us now, and the way we take this text, is we must understand that we cannot split down the middle. And it's getting harder and harder to be a Jesus follower and to keep one foot in the world. You will have to choose who your allegiance is to. 
I love what C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Hideous Strength. That Hideous Strength, rather. It's a, it's a novel, and I'll just read it for you. It talks about how things, as we get closer and closer to the end, keep getting sharper and sharper and sharper, meaning we have to pick a side, and there's less and less and less of a middle ground. It says, have you ever noticed, said Dimble, that the universe and every bit of the universe is always hardening and narrowing and coming to a point? His wife waited as those who wait, who know by long experience the mental processes of the person who is talking to them. I mean this, said Dimble. In answer to the question she had not asked, <laughs> if you dip into any college or school or parish or family, anything like that, at any given point in history, you will always find that there was a time before that point when there was more elbow room and contrasts weren't quite so sharp, and that there's going to be a time after that point when there's even less room for indecision and choices are even more momentous. Good is always getting better, and bad is always getting worse. The possibilities of even appearing neutral are always diminishing. The whole thing is sorting itself out all the time, coming to a point, getting sharper and harder. And friends, do you not feel that in the world? That there was a time in which maybe two people could disagree on a couple things and still be in the same room, but those disagreements that we can disagree on and still be in the same room seem to be getting narrower and narrower and narrower. And one of the big points in history where this all started was Jesus Christ riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Everything's getting a lot more narrow. Uh, in Acts, it says there was times prior when God overlooked the ways of people's ancestors, worshiping other gods. But now the time has come when you must worship Jesus Christ as Lord. The person who tells you Jesus Christ is all cupcakes and rainbows and he just wants everybody to get along and doesn't matter what you believe is a person who has not read the Bible or they are a liar. Because Jesus comes and he does not give us that option. He says, you will worship me as king or you will not. But there is no middle ground. He is either Lord over all or he is not Lord at all. And it doesn't matter how many people you find that will tickle your ears and tell you that it's true otherwise, that you can believe things that Jesus said were, true, were not true and say, well, Jesus doesn't really care about those things anymore, is a person who is lying to you. You must decide right now, is Jesus your king or is he not? There is no room for neutrality in this. And the time is only making that neutral space get smaller and smaller and smaller. So that number one was uh, the reason why Jesus acted this way was because his hour had come. Number two is he's leaving us no room for neutrality. Now, number three, the final reason is he's giving us a foretaste of the second coming, giving us a foretaste of the true Palm Sunday, that day in which Jesus rides in and he becomes the king over the entire universe. Uh, the way that these people felt shouting Hosanna on this day was a foreshadowing of the second coming of Jesus. The true and the final coronation of Jesus is around the corner. Now, there are many points that I could make here about how it's similar to the second coming of Jesus, but I'll just make two. Uh, number one is it gives us a chance to decide how we will welcome Jesus. It should make you think about which crowd you will be in when Jesus comes back. Will you be in the crowd saying crucify him? Or will you be in the crowd that says Hosanna, Hosanna? It's a very important question. And although Jesus is not physically riding into this building on a donkey today, through the words that I am preaching, I am telling you he is riding into the building and you've got to decide, am I shouting Hosanna or am I with the Pharisees who are offended that somebody would want to become the king over my life? I've said it multiple times, but I believe Jesus wants to sit on three thrones. The first throne was the throne in the spiritually realm, the spiritual realm, the heavenly realm. And Jesus is already seated on that throne. In fact, you should read Ephesians uh, chapter 1 at the end, verses 20 through 23. It says that we, uh, God's people, are actually seated with him on that throne over the heavenly realms. I don't fully understand what that means, and nobody fully understands what it means, but it's pretty awesome. Jesus had completed that mission. When he came and he died, he crushed the head of Satan. He now rules in the heavenly realm. 
And the last throne that Jesus will sit on is the physical throne of this earth. I believe fully that he is going to come back one day. And when he comes back, there will be no more kings. There will be no more presidents. They will all have to lay down their crowns at the feet of Jesus. And those that do not lay down their crown at the feet of Jesus will be destroyed. There will be no American flags or Chinese flags or any other kind of flag in heaven. You know why? We will have one kingdom and one king and he will rule over the entire earth. And I cannot wait for that day. Because it says on that day he will put to death his final enemy, death. And that's just really cool. I don't even know what that means. But I know when Jesus comes, death is going to die. And we are all going to rejoice. But in the meantime, there's a throne that he is seeking. And that is the throne of your heart. Jesus wants you to decide to make him the king of your life. If you wonder why Jesus has not came back yet, it's because he is seeking after your heart and the hearts of all who will call upon his name. I do not know if we are 30,000 years away or 30 minutes away from Jesus coming back, but I do know when that last person puts Jesus on the throne of their heart and it is time, he's going to come back. And right now is yet another opportunity to decide, is Jesus my king or is he not? This is God's grace to some of you. Some of you do not care about any of the words I'm saying, and I'm praying that they wake you up. In fact, if you do not care about what I am saying, this is very dangerous for you. Because the scripture is very clear that the more times you hear the gospel and you do not respond to it, the harder your heart begets. And eventually, you'll get to the point where God no longer seeks to reach you. You are literally unreachable because your heart has become so hard. And so this is yet another chance for you to say, is Jesus my king or is he not my king? That's what Palm Sunday is all about. I love what Doug Wilson says. He says, what do you make of Jesus? Do you want him to die or do you want him to reign? If you want him to die, then you want him to stay dead, which he refused to do, and thereby stay out of your life. If you want him to reign, that is good because he is going to reign regardless. I love that. You can decide today that Jesus is not going to reign in my life, but friends, I hate to tell you, he's reigning anyways. And one day, every knee and every tongue will confess him as Lord. You will either do that by humbling yourself now or you will do it on the day of humiliation when he separates the sheep from the goats. So that's the the first thing. It gives us a chance to decide how we will welcome Jesus. Number two is I believe that it gives us hope in the darkness. This world is very dark and there's a lot of things that don't go the way we think they ought to go. And Palm Sunday is a very good uh, way for us to think about our trials and suffering. It gives us hope in the midst of darkness. Uh, if, If we think about these crowds... Uh, In many ways, the crowd that was shouting Hosanna faced a horrible surprise just a few days after this. I mean, they think that this is their savior. He's supposed to come in and he's supposed to be the king. He's supposed to overthrow all of these oppressive governments that have been over them for thousands of years. This is the answer to prayer. They expected Jesus to get a crown filled with jewels. And instead, on Friday, they saw Jesus get a crown of thorns. They expected Jesus to ascend to a throne. And instead, they watched Jesus lifted up on a cross. Everything that they thought and everything that they believed had fallen apart. And this caused them all to run into hiding and silence. And we can't really blame them. Can you imagine how scary it would have been to see the person you thought was going to change the world on a cross? Knowing that you might be on the cross next week because you were a part of his team. No, So that they all run and they all hide. And Jesus told them that they would. Jesus said it over and over. He even said it to Peter. And Peter said, I will never abandon you. And Jesus says, yes, you will. Mark fourteen twenty seven says, then Jesus said to them, all of you will fall away. Because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, what we know is three days later, he rose again. And all those who were scattered came back to Jesus. All those who ran in fear now had the kind of boldness to where they were willing to die for the faith. And because we know that, 
it's very easy for us to be very judgmental of the disciples. You know, we can say, how could you guys not know? Jesus literally, in the Gospels, told you guys, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. And we think, how silly of them to not know what's going on. But we can't blame them. You know why? Because nothing like this had ever happened before. They had never seen somebody die, like really dead, and raise himself from the dead. They had never even been able to comprehend something like this. So when the shepherd is struck, of course they scattered. Because things did not go the way that they thought it was going to go. But friends, you and I, on the other side of this, do not have the same kind of uh, excuse. Because it has happened before. We do know that after the hope of Palm Sunday, there are going to be times of great darkness. There will be times in which it appears that our shepherd has been struck. There will be times in which we say, where are you, God? None of this is fair. And yet we know, don't we, friends, that on the other side of the cross is resurrection. And if we believe this, if we internalize this, it makes us people of immense courage. And it makes us people who have faith that the world cannot fully understand. If the band wants to go ahead and come back up, I'm coming to a close here pretty quick. But one of the things I find interesting is that faith really shines brightest in the darkness. You know, it's one thing after the Super Bowl, when you've won the Super Bowl, to say all glory to God. Uh, in fact, sometimes that annoys me when I hear people say that, because how easy is it, is it to give all glory to God when you're making $20 million a year playing football and you just won the biggest game? Like, oh, please tell me about your faith, how hard it must be to be an NFL football player. Or I just watched a NASCAR driver win yesterday, and I want to throw a remote at my TV because he said, it's all in God's timing that I won this race. I'm like, oh, please, son. You know, like, you, you're a NASCAR driver. You drive in circles for a living. How much faith does it really take? But you know what really does shock us? Is when we see the faith of somebody who in their life is falling apart. When everybody else would say, your God failed you, they say, no, he hasn't. My faith is as strong as ever, if not stronger than ever, right now in this darkness. When people do that, that's what really pops out in this world. That's what really gets our attention, doesn't it, friends? I've been thinking about this a lot this uh, past week with the shootings that happened in Nashville. uh, As three nine-year-olds died and three adults died trying to save them. And one of the the children, one of the nine-year-olds that died was actually the daughter of the pastor. His name is Chad Scruggs. And... uh, I, I, my heart was hurt all week as I thought about this because I, I can't imagine having to stand up before my faith community knowing that I had just lost my daughter. And you would wonder things that everybody wonders when these kind of things happen, like was it my fault? Even if it wasn't, you would begin to wonder, was it my fault? Was there more that I could do? And if there was ever a time in which it appeared like the shepherd had been struck, I can imagine for him losing his baby girl, his only daughter, his youngest child, that in that moment, he might wonder if the shepherd had been struck. Jesus, I followed you. I've given my life to this ministry. I've given my life to follow after you, and this is what I get. My baby girl going to a Christian school is killed in the church that I'm the pastor over. I can only imagine the pain that he might feel. And I don't think any of us would have blamed him if he came out with his statement and he was mad. And he said, I can't believe how this happened. Or, or if he got mad at all of us for making it a political event. You know, everybody wants to make it about politics, and I guarantee you he doesn't care about the NRA or any other kind of people who might want to make it about politics. All he cares about is his baby girl is not with him anymore. And yet he is constantly badgered for a statement. Constantly people want to know what he thinks of this situation. Why? So they can use it and twist it for whatever political end they might have. And I don't know about you guys, but I know that my words would probably not be very kind words unless it was for the grace of God. And yet I love what Pastor said, what Pastor Chad said. Now, He didn't say much. He said one sentence. But listen to this. This is somebody who understands Palm Sunday. 
This is somebody who understands hope on the other side of darkness. It says, we are heartbroken. She was such a gift. Through tears, we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus who will raise her to life once again. Do you know how somebody has that kind of faith? Because they've already heard the story and they know it'll happen again because they know God will do it again. They know what happened on the other side of Palm Sunday. They know that he died, but friends, he didn't stay dead. He rose again. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you so much for the many things that there are to learn in this text. God, I praise you. I praise you as my king. But God, if I'm honest, oftentimes in my heart, there's a battle. There are times in which I just want you out of my life. I want to crucify you like those shouting to release Barabbas. And yet, God, I am so grateful that even for people like me who struggle with making you king and with wanting you out of my life from the cross, you say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And Jesus, I thank you that through Palm Sunday, we have hope even in the darkness. And friends, if you would take about 10 seconds with your eyes closed and head bowed, say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? Father God, I pray that you give us the courage to obey what you've called us to do. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. If my ushers would go ahead and come forward at this time, uh, we always end the service in the same way, and that's with giving you an opportunity to respond to what God has called you to do. Uh, We respond in three ways. We respond in reflection, uh, which we have just done, and we will do as they're passing the plates here in just a minute. And we also get the opportunity to respond through giving, giving back to Jesus what is his. Uh, The people on Palm Sunday are throwing leafy branches Uh, at the feet of Jesus. And they're throwing their clothes at the feet of Jesus. Why are they doing this? Well, they're saying, we are giving you everything we have because you are a king. And you know what you do for a king? You give him all that you can give him. Does a king need anything that you need, that you have? Absolutely not. But it's a way that we show our appreciation and our gratitude to Jesus. So we're going to have an opportunity to do that through giving here in just a moment. While they're passing the plates, they're just going to be playing music behind us. It's a time for you to continue to reflect upon the message. And then when they're finished, we'll stand up and we'll sing to King Jesus. And then we'll go out of this place and we'll live lives that honor and glorify him. But first, let me pray for this offering and then we'll get started. Father God, thank you so much for all that you've given us. God, we praise you because you are our king. Everything we have is yours anyways. And so now we just return part of what is yours. As we remember that everything we have and everything that we are comes from you. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.